Now, we begin today with Temple Street and the questions that remain around the use of unlicensed devices in spinal surgeries and the circumstances which led to post-operative complications in the case of several children and the death of 10-year-old Dulciana Carter. A meeting between Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and groups representing families at the centre of the controversy was due to last 30 minutes yesterday. Instead, it went on for at least an hour and a half. The families were told that Taoiseach would not rule out a full statutory review of the running of all the hospitals under Children's Health Ireland and they may be granted some control over the terms of reference for the external review already announced. Now today the Irish Hospital Consultants Association will also hear calls for adjustments in the terms of reference of that review. Now, I want to introduce you to Professor John McCabe, who's president of the Irish Spine Society. He worked as a spinal surgeon in the public health system here for 28 years. Professor McCabe, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Colin. I'm just going to let my guests in studio here get on their headphones so they can hear what you have to say there. You worked in the public system as a spinal surgeon for many years, predominantly treating children, was it? No, really, broad spectrum of spine care, which included children and adults. Obviously, working in the west of Ireland, I uh, had uh, an occasion to see and treat on a relatively regular basis uh, children with spinal deformity up until relatively recently. And of, you know, specialist surgeries, just how complex an area is that? This is at the very top of complex uh, spinal surgery in children with serious morbidity associated with the conditions that the children have, as well as the risks associated with spinal surgery in general. And it is also very rare in the context of world spinal surgery uh, and only carried out in very specialised centres. Now, you're, of course, aware of the controversy going on around Temple Street and what went on with the surgery of of 19 children, three indeed in in particular. And while not commenting on that specifically, could you enlighten us as to the devices used in any spinal operation? Some of them are standard, but what about new implants or tools that you think might be worth trying? How do you bring or how do you have to go about bringing innovative practices into use? Well, I come from an era where we had little or no devices capable of stabilising the spine. And it was one of the key reasons I got involved in spinal surgery close to 40 years ago, because innovations were developing at a pace and it allowed people of my generation to use newer techniques that could alter radically the quality of life of people. So in many respects, stepping back from it, we have to understand that implant technology is always changing. It's not a static situation. And there's a specific issue pertaining to rarity of complexity of surgery where the implants will not be uh, um, a regular uh, device necessarily. It will be adaption of devices for other reasons. And to some extent, uh, this is uh, reported in our medical literature regularly to look at changes that might influence better outcomes. It should be acknowledged that in the world literature, there is not many reports of more than 20 to 30 children requiring surgery of this type uh, that can guide best practice. And individual experience of doing uh, many of these operations internationally would be uh, limited. So it's in that context that we're discussing the problem per se. Right. And the Boston's, Boston uh, Children's Hospital 
external review identify the fact that there's a high prevalence of spina bifida in Ireland and due to the waiting lists, the complexity of surgery by the time surgery is being performed is of a particularly complex order. So is Ireland, I suppose, pioneering territory in this area then? Well, I think suffice to say that Ireland, uh, the medical advice uh, community in Ireland is a very uh, active community. Uh, the west of Ireland, for example, is the biggest implant device area in Europe. It is in the top five in the world. So innovation and change and design, working with scientists, engineers, etc., is commonplace. And it's all focused around improving outcomes. Uh, so it, it, we work in a community that is of, of itself a very innovative community, including in the spinal area. And how do you become familiar with new devices? I mean, it's the tool you're going to use. So how do you get to a level of confidence with a medical device before you use it? I think it's only fair to say that people should understand that those of us who do spinal surgery are highly trained to uh, implant devices in the spine. Most of us will do our training in Ireland and then commit to training abroad in in true centres of excellence at world standard level and learn to uh, work in a community of teamwork in Irish training and abroad and return home often to much lesser facilities than we could have enjoyed had we stayed abroad. So we are exposed at a very early stage, particularly in orthopedic spine practice, to mechanics of spinal devices, etc. And we grow into it uh, along our training, which is on average an absolute minimum of 12 years. So in many respects, we are at the top end of international training for what we do. But we often work in very difficult circumstances of under provision of supports. So the, so just, just to be clear about that, the circumstances under which you're working in Ireland as a spinal surgeon may contrast heavily with well-resourced specialist services in places like, say, the United States. Well, without being totally unkind to uh, us as a nation, we have to understand that we have uh, not uh, funded healthcare in Ireland commensurate with the norm of elsewhere in the OECD. The figures are there. Uh, we have some of the lowest numbers of specialists per head of population in the developed world in the OECD. Uh, as a result, our whole infrastructure is not commensurate with best practice. Take, for example, Temple Street, which I had the pleasure of working in in 1989 as a young training orthopaedic surgeon. The common mantra in the hospital is when we move to the new hospital. I say that tongue-in-cheek because it, it stuck with me over the years as we talked about the planning of a new centre. So in many respects, you know, we have uh, a deficit there in terms of uh, facilities, uh, staffing, expertise, support network that uh, has bedeviled modern uh, practice. So we have to acknowledge these deficits. And I think I agree with Professor Landers on behalf of our organization, the Irish Hospital Consultants Association, that we need a proper, thorough 360 review of spine care in total for children, and that it should be um, independent uh, and focused on best practice. and objective uh, analysis. All right, and that it would reflect those those resource challenges in the wider system. But to get back to, I suppose, the specifics of it, the devices that you mentioned being used in surgery, have you ever encountered a situation in your own professional practice where 
something that wasn't regulated to European Union standards was used in surgery? Well, I think this is a, a difficult thing to comment upon because um, uh, obviously I'm not aware of the specific instances, but let me diversify a little bit and say that in implant surgery for unique anatomy, at times I have recourse to go to companies who design up implants who are world leaders in implant design and work with them for unique body habitus. So, for example, if you had uh, somebody of short stature who needed uh, an implant design that couldn't be uh, used off the shelf, you would go to a company and say, let's sit down and work out what's best for this individual. And this is uh, an implant designed up purely for that particular individual. So that is part of surgical practice in orthopedics. And it's regarded as best practice rather than trying to have the uh, if you like, the implant fit the patient, the patient uh, must have a dedicated implant made for them. So these are these would be unique circumstances, and I can't comment in this particular case, but not every implant uh, that is uh, used is just off the shelf. All right, but it, it, the, the customization, the alteration of that would be done by the medical device company in a regulated environment and signed off by their internal safety mechanisms. Is that is that your Correct. understanding? Abs- absolutely. Uh, this is a highly regulated market. Uh, and in that context uh, is where innovation and change happens. Um, many of our hospitals have research and development uh, services. They are growing in Ireland. We have a network of hospitals that are involved in uh, uh, clinical trials for implants, for medicines. Uh, and so change is essential and we are at the forefront of that in many respects in Ireland, despite right. a relative small size. But even after it has left the medical devices company, it is not uncommon or is it indeed common that somebody from the medical devices company would be in the theatre seeing how this device is inserted into a patient? Yes, that's correct. In my own practice for uh, for many, many years, in fact, it's almost uh, standard of care that a, a person with expertise and knowledge from uh, the company's uh, uh, setup will uh, support us at the level of making sure that on the day we're putting in the implant that we have all the necessary equipment available to assist in implantation. And is there as an advisory role from purely the company's perspective that the device is going in, in in a proper matter to assist the surgeon and the whole team. And so they would be in theatre and would see the device or would be at least aware of what was being done to prepare this device for the surgery. Yeah, that would be. These are all safety checks. We nowadays have a, a very uh, uh, extensive safety check prior to putting anybody under anesthesia. Let me assure the public that this is highly uh, organised in the modern era uh, and it is a sign-out procedure, sign-off and everything we're doing before we even start. Uh, typical of a checklist, as you'll see pilots going through before they take off from a, uh, from an airport. So the whole process is uh, highly um, organised typically nowadays. The implant, of course, has to be sterilised. Uh, the implant has to be uh, 
recognised and uh, commented upon before we'd even uh, do the procedure, that you have the right size for the right patient on that day. All right. And if an unusual customization or adjustment was made to a component in general, who would you expect to notice that or be aware of it? Usually you'll have brought it through the hospital uh, system in terms of uh, ethics approval, etc. Engagement with colleagues in your department, uh, talked, uh, you know, you're engaging with the company. Uh, there's a process there to allow uh, uh, equipment to be ultimately CE marked in Europe. Uh, uh, an implant has to go through an initial evaluation, uh, perhaps at levels of bench testing into animal studies, into human studies. Um, uh, so there, 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 is, there is a whole process there uh, that typically would happen. But uh, at the time of uh, having the implant in the hospital, if the implant is CE marked, we regard that as uh, 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 label use uh, and would proceed to use implants that are CE marked. All right. Having said that, uh, implants can be initially CE marked and then withdrawn, as uh, happened more recently with the magic rods. In terms of the aftermath of surgery, if somebody presents with a problem post-surgery, to whom is that relayed within the hospital? And is it always the job of the original surgeon who performed the procedure? Is it their job to correct the complication? What what's what are the protocols around that? In fairness, nowadays, in most uh, surgical units doing complex surgery, a person's condition is presented at a conference initially discussed a uh, consensus drawn up as to what's the best approach to utilize for the particular individual, signed off and discussed with uh, the person and their families uh, if they're a minor, and then uh, the process uh, starts. So there's a lead in there that's very uh, typically comprehensive. And then uh, the exit part of it, of course, we now in most hospitals have um, standards under which we assess the surgical process for uh, reassurance uh, that everything has gone along expected lines. So we have uh, a system whereby uh, uh, um, noted complications get reported and reviewed, uh, where uh, the classic would be a return to theatre uh, for further care, uh, which is not unusual in complex uh, surgery. And uh, But that is part of a notification process in terms of risk management in most hospitals, uh, Uh, certainly uh, most hospitals that I've worked in. All right. Professor John McCabe, spinal surgeon and president of the Irish Spine Society. Many thanks for joining us and sparing the time with us uh, this afternoon. Now, let me introduce my political panel in studio this week. There, Oisín Smith, Minister of State of the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform and Green Party TD for Dunlera, Sorka Clark, Sinn Féin TD for Longford Westmeath and her party spokesperson on education and Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD for Dublin South West. Thanks, thanks all for coming in and joining us this afternoon. Uh, Paul Murphy, you raised this first in a parliamentary question, I think, back in the summer. Have you been talking to families since the meeting with the Taoiseach and the Minister? No, not since yesterday's meeting. Before the meeting, I was speaking to them. And in general, their sense is, I mean, they've been failed for years and years and years in this country. Um, There's over 300 children currently on waiting lists for spinal surgery in CHI. There's over 100 on waiting lists for over a year. So they've been failed repeatedly. Um, they've been failed an extra amount with these high levels of complications, with the incredible use of unlicensed uh, implants. And they also feel, so far anyway, 
failed and not listened to in terms of how CHI and the state has responded to this crisis. Um, they were late to know about the external reviews that was first commissioned towards the end of last year. They were late to get the outcomes before they were they were published. They were meant to get them. There was various technical problems and so on. Um, whenever the, CA, the, the internal review from Crumlin was released the other day, they were told like less than 24 hours. They were given the information before it went uh, public. So they've repeatedly been not listened to and they, they have to be listened to. They have to be at the centre of the external review that is now being uh, commissioned, uh, which means their voice is being heard. It means it being expanded to deal with across CHI because this is a governance issue. You know, it's an issue about how could this have happened? Could it happen in other surgery that a surgeon could say, you know what, I'm going to use this type of implant that isn't licensed, that isn't authorised because I think it's a good idea. Could that be happening elsewhere? That's a question that needs to be gotten to the bottom of. And the other very important point is that it is vital that the external review now being commissioned includes a spinal surgeon. You need to have someone who's going to be able to read the patient's charts and say that was done correctly, that was not done correctly. Because Somebody from outside the jurisdiction, do you think? Yes, yes, I think that would definitely make sense in okay. terms of the, the relationships and so on that can exist. What level of information did you have when you first raised this back on May 4th, I think it was, um, by way of, of a parliamentary question? Because you asked about unlicensed devices. At that stage, did you know that springs were what had been used or because... yeah. The, the answers that were given to you, you've, you've yes. been told subsequently that your question wasn't sufficiently detailed, although people might assume that actually the broad nature of the question might have captured any such deviation from, from, from standard practice. But what information did you have at the time? Yeah, so I, I first came into contact with a whistleblower from inside the system in April of this year who made the allegation to me that there were unusually high levels of uh, complications, of reoperations. And that in a number of cases, cases springs had been used. And just to clarify, because I think people often hear... Just before yeah, you sure. go, had that whistleblower, in your understanding, had they pursued other avenues or were they, as is their right, yes. going to a member of the Oireachtas in the first instance or indeed a journalist over a matter of public concern? But had they tried to highlight their concerns within the system? Um, I think in terms of not identifying the whistleblower, I can't go into okay, that right um, but i would say that as i understand it people have previously within the system raised these concerns and have gotten not very far in relation to them and okay. there's a point made in the external review about culture in the hospital and so on which i think speaks to to that uh, just the, the point i was going to make actually about the springs right is we often say you know non-medical grade springs um, as in the metal wasn't appropriate. And that's that's accurate and that's a big problem. But that can leave people with the impression that if, if proper metal was used, a spring would have been appropriate. As I understand it, there is no authorised operation to implant springs, appropriate metal or not appropriate metal, into children with spina bifida. It doesn't exist. There's an experiment happening at the moment this is in the, the, one the Netherlands. This the Exactly. Which maybe that'll turn out, they'll have a process, they'll have a control group and so on. Maybe it'll turn out that this is a good operation to do. Maybe it won't. But at the moment, that is purely in the process of testing. It is not free for others to, to do that. But go, to go back to the question, so I, I asked if all implants used were appropriately uh, licensed. And the answer I got back the Minister for Health kicked it to Children's Health uh, Ireland and the answer I got back was that CHI said to the best of our knowledge it's standard practice that all implants are CE approved and licensed appropriately for this purpose. Um, so they said 
everything is fine. Effectively, yeah, exactly. No, no. And, no in, in in essence, was what was it, what was the answer to your question? Not notwithstanding that caveat, to the best of knowledge, just, yes. just 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 hold that thought. Oshin Smith, the um, the drive now is for uh, for a wider re- review, but there are questions to be answered of a very specific nature. So what would you like to see answered? Listening to what John McCabe had to say about the protocols and that, what strikes you as the specific questions? Because I'm sure the families and parents will have will have a, have, a, have a range more of them too. Well, I think the immediate challenge is treating the children. So, you know, one of the um, key people, one of the surgeons who's there, isn't carrying out clinical work anymore. There are only two spina bifida surgeons in that hospital. So, you know, we have, um, as we've heard, a long waiting list, uh, a lot of people in in pain who need to be treated, and the immediate challenge is how do we maintain, how do we stabilise the service, how do we treat, how do we make sure that we're delivering enough Which is partly treatment. the concern of your own department, isn't it? You it control is. the public finances and in terms of buying treatments abroad or from private medical health providers, that's this something that your this department will have a very active role in. It is true. So, one, I mean, and one of the options is to outsource to the to the private sector or to buy abroad. But because, as you heard from the professor, these are very complex surgeries that require a lot of aftercare and a lot of repeat surgeries. Going going away to another country might involve a very long tour uh, away and may may not be may not be the best option. But we will certainly look at that and maybe perhaps some, for example the less complex ones could be sent abroad and other ones could be done privately. But that is, if you're asking, what is the first challenge or the first concern, it's how do we maintain uh, care? How do we maintain treatment of those children who are sick? Because we could spend it, you know, it's not all going to be about reviews and looking at the past and so on. It's, it, 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 we, we, need to, we need to do that first. And but if a systemic review comes back and finds that the pressures in the system, the waiting lists, the sheer burden of work on surgeons was a major part of the problem, as is indicated by, by the Boston Children's Hospital review. Will there be commensurate spending to meet and address those concerns, in your understanding? Yes, and there has been increased spending over the last two years. Uh, like there have been 19 or 20 million euros both this year and last year going into the service. And yet, and yet, yet at the situation. same time, I'm going to say the same thing as you, at the same, despite that increased uh, investment, waiting lists have not come down. And part of what's going to happen with this review is to look at service delivery as well as the quality of surgery is going to be one thing. The, 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 the next thing is to look at the, the culture and the governance that could have led to this and also then to, to look at how, whether service delivery, why service delivery isn't working. It's an international expert. It's a, a well-respected uh, UK spinal surgeon, paediatric surgeon who's going to carry out this review. Right. And certainly we'll be looking at this. This is a time where we're listening and where clearly something very has gone very, very badly wrong for these children and for their families over a long period of time. And at a time where the pressure was to try to deliver more surgery, we're now, we're now at a point where uh, we found that the surgery themselves, the quality of the surgery, the things that are going on, and it's far beyond okay. just the springs. It's not just uh, unauthorised Im- implants. The quality of the outcomes that was coming out of these surgeries was below international standards. So there were only three children, as I understand, affected by these springs. But there's a much wider cohort. There All were right. 19 children in the I, I want to, overall whose surgery was not was not satisfactory. I, I want to get to uh, to Sorka Clark on this because um, your party leader and the leader of the Labour Party was calling for. A, a wider review. It seems that the Taoiseach agrees with that, although I think when Paul Murphy raised this with him in leaders' questions on Tuesday, he had concerns about a wider review, uh, I suppose, swamping the capacity to get the correct answers. 
So what way should it be sequenced? Because we've seen tribunals broken into modules. Should the Springs question be answered first as module one of any inquiry and then widen it out? Or should everything be looked at in the beginning in terms of the systemic pressures? I think I actually agree with what Professor McCabe said there in, in his contribution when he spoke about this needing to be a 360 investigation. I think ultimately, whatever form this takes, whatever shape this takes, what we need is a mechanism for CHI, for the minister and for the state to get out in front of this. So issues like this never happen again. And Colm, oftentimes we, be, we can become desensitised almost to the words crisis, to the word scandal when it comes to our health service. These are some of the most vulnerable children that we have in our country and we cannot become desensitised to that. The, whether it's non-medical springs, whether it's... And, and sorry, I'm, I'm just going to respond to something that Oshin said there about the outcomes that were taking place. Professor McCabe was very clear in his contribution what his experience of over 40, year, 40 years in this has been. And it isn't just the outcomes. It's the staffing. It's the expertise. It's the support. It's the facilities. Consultants at the time, and this came true in the Health Committee the other day, had actually raised concerns about the lack of recovery capacity supporting nursing staff and the availability of ICU capacity across Temple Street and Kappa hospitals. This needs to be, as Professor McCabe said, that 360. However, to do that in isolation is not going to deliver for the children who have an urgent need now. And where there is children who are capable of travelling abroad, the minister and government need to intervene there and they need to put that in place as soon as possible for these children. These children have conditions that worsen with time. We know the length of the waiting lists. They are truly astronomical and truly disgraceful. But where there is a child who is capable of travelling abroad to have that surgery commenced and to have that it, even the initial part or the first surgery of a series of some to be commenced, that needs to happen. But it also need, means that the All state right, needs to put very, resources in I around wanna, that child to ensure that that happens. I just want to very briefly Smith respond to that. Do you see money being an issue with any findings that would come out of the review about the systemic pressures? I honestly don't see money being an issue. I think that the problems are much broader than that. And, uh, you know, yesterday, uh, Stephen Donnelly, I talked to him after his meeting with the parents and with the Taoiseach, and he told me that what they had been looking for was a, a broader review, not just to be restricted to one particular surgeon, not to one hospital, not to one type of surgery, and to go beyond um, just the quality of surgery, but also the governance within the hospital and so on, and the you know the availability of money for, for service delivery. So uh, I would agree with that. OK, all right. Well, stay with us. We'll be back after this with some insight into the powerful opioid fentanyl.